Well, good morning. My name is Rob, and believe it or not, I am one of the pastors here. And um, yeah, what an interesting text that Sally just read for us. And look, if you don't have a Bible, there has been a church that's donated some, so you can grab some in the back if you'd like, and uh, you can track along. It'd be a lot easier to track along, um, or if you've got smartphone or whatever, you can track along that way. Um, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at a thing called the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch. Now, that's probably not a word you're very familiar with. I doubt you're going to go to Macker's this week and say, yeah, can I get a Pentateuch burger or a side of Pentateuch? Right? That's just not, it's not a common phrase. But Pentateuch is the name for collectively the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Pentateuch. Penta means five. Tuch means writing or book. So it's the five books, the five writings. Pentateuch. Now we've already looked at Genesis and Exodus Today we come to the book of Leviticus. Speaking of Leviticus, I don't know, perhaps maybe you've had this experience before. You go to church and the pastor says, men and women, boys and girls, it would be great if you read your Bibles. In fact, I'd encourage you to read your Bibles. And you hear that and you think, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's what we're supposed to do. I th- yeah, I think I'll have a go. And so the next morning comes, you get your Bible, you wake up before you get onto the train or maybe you sit on the train and read it or, or whatever and you get your Bible and you say, all right, I'm gonna have a go. I'm gonna open up here. Let's do this, okay? So you sit, you're sitting down or standing up or whatever, but in all case, I'll sit down. You say, all right, let me open this up. All right, pastor said I should read the Bible, so here we go. Levic, Levit, Levic, Leviathan, no, Leviticus. Wow, it's an odd name for a book, but, but you're super keen, right? So, so off you go. Okay, here we go. Uh, the Lord said to Mo, uh, the Lord called and spoke oh, to Moses from the tent of meeting. Oh, this is going to be good. I just remember what happened in Exodus can't wait. Maybe you're not standing up, but you're thinking in your mind, this is going to be good, right? Because when God speaks, there's thunder and lightning, right? This is going to be exciting. And and seas split open and and this, okay, here we go. Verse two, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the side of the altar. This, okay, wow. Okay, this is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. Whoa, good night. 
That seems pretty full on. I, I, I guess I'll just I'll skip ahead here. Uh, there's all birds. I like birds. I can hear birds singing still morning time. Oh, here we go. Verse 14. Uh, if his offering of the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Oh my goodness. What is going on? I hope the animal activists don't read about this because this is, this is, this is, what is this book? What, what, the pastor was telling me I should re- read my Bible. What, what is going on here? Okay, well, look, you know, no one knows. I'm sitting here by myself. Maybe it'll help if I just sort of skim the chapters a little bit. Maybe look at the chapter headings. That way I can see whatever the heading is and then sort of read from there. All right, uh, let's see here. Let's keep going. Uh, laws for the grain offering. Okay, that sounds like another sacrifice, I think, sort of. Laws, chapter three, laws for the peace offerings. Yikes, what is going on here? Laws for the fellowship offerings. Chapter four, you've got the sin offering. Okay, it's a lot of, I mean, honestly, when, when, when are these, when is it going to quit with all these offerings and these animals and these smells and all this stuff? What's going on here? Let's get to chapter 11. Okay, chapter 11 talks about clean and unclean animals. That's about food as well. Man, I thought my hippie friends were weird, and this is getting even more particular. Uh, I'll try Chapter 13 deals with skin diseases and mold. Okay, I, I, I thought the Bible gave instructions on, on how to love people, right? I mean, isn't that what we're told? You know, come on, what's, okay, let's, ah, here we go. This looks like it's about people. I think I found it. Here we go. 15, chapter 15. Oh, my, M-O-G. Yikes. And then I get to chapter 18. This stuff's rated R. Well, I guess I'm halfway through the book of Leviticus now. <laughs> Be honest, out of a show of hands, Maybe you haven't been that flippant about it, but how many of you have ever experienced something like that if you've tr- ever had a go at reading Leviticus out of a show of hands? Okay, a couple honest people there. Yeah, you're not alone. For many of us, this book feels rather odd. I mean, animals are killed and then burned, grain is burned, there's rules about skin infections and all kinds of crazy things. So what we have to do in order to sort of understand this book, is to step back to make sense of it and recall how we got to this place, right? Because it's, it's rather confusing when we read Leviticus in a vacuum. In other words, if you just pick up Leviticus and you're just, uh, your, your worldview is only sort of here in Leviticus, you're just trying to make sense of it. But remember, God has brought his people, redeemed his people out of Egypt, Right? They're headed to the promised land. And then, as they're camped out at the foot of Mount Sinai, God says, stop. I'm going to dwell right amongst you guys. Kind of like how Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. Remember that? My presence now. Wow, this has been ages. God said, I'm going to dwell right amongst you guys. And if you're an Israelite, you're thinking, okay, sounds cool, but how on earth is this going to work? 
I mean, let's not forget about the golden calf fiasco. That's still fresh in their minds, I'm sure. Or how about the fact that the nation of Israel are constantly whinging at Moses and God for their situation? So how's this going to work? These folks wouldn't know holy living if it smacked them in the face. So how can a holy God dwell among them? How can these sinful, profane men and women live in close proximity to this holy God without being destroyed? How is this going to work? Answer, the book of Leviticus. Church, listen, the book of Leviticus shows us that God is holy, so his people must be holy. God is holy, so his people must be holy. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and you agree with that first line. God is holy. You hear that and you say, yeah, I agree. But then you look at your own life the choices you've made this past week, perhaps in the last 48 hours, and you feel torn in different directions. How many of you, us have found ourselves wanting to move in one direction towards holiness, towards obedience, towards God, yet being pulled in another? And it's my prayer that the Lord would use his word this morning to give you an awe-inspiring picture of himself to get a glimpse of his holiness. And that image would drive you to be holy just as he is holy. So here's where we're headed. Here's where we're headed then. First, I want us to think about this idea of God being holy, which we see that really through a separation, right? You have the tabernacle. That's an interesting word. We'll, we'll talk about that. And then you have distance from the tabernacle. It kind of works its way out. And we'll, we'll talk about that. And then second, I want us to think about how the nation of Israel are called to be holy in their sacrifices and in their living. So that's where we're going. God is holy. And we'll see that displayed through the tabernacle. And then second, his people are called to be holy in their sacrifices and in their daily lives. Let's pray as before we unpack that. Gracious God, you know our hearts and lives like no one else. You see our thoughts and deepest longings and affections. Lord, what we need most of all this morning is you. So Lord, in your grace... Please show us that need. May we feel it and cling to you through your Son, the Lord Jesus. God, would you grant repentance and faith today. Glorify yourself in these next 30 minutes. Show yourself to be holy. And then may we as your people long for holiness in our lives. And we ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so remember, we can't see Leviticus in a vacuum, you know, if you're, as you're sitting on the train or whatever, nighttime. Those of you that read at night, some of you, I, I, I talked about the morning, some people like to read at night, good for you. 
So whatever that is, we can't see Leviticus, though, in a vacuum. So I think it's helpful to remember, remember where we've come from. So I know we're there in Leviticus now, but, but just go to the left in your Bible, just to the very last chapter of the book of Exodus, which is right before Leviticus. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 1, notice here, the Lord, so remember, remember God's people redeemed, they're there, put them out Sinai. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the month, you shall erect the tabernacle. See that there? It's a place of worship. That's a, like, a, like a portable temple. A portable temple, really. Um, and then in verse 34, notice, actually, actually in verse 17, we see that he obeys. Verse 17. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. So there you go. And then, now look, verse 34, 34, and then we'll jump right here to Leviticus. Then the cloud overshadowed the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh, the glory of the Lord, filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the next day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the ta- uh, sorry. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. So, as mentioned last time, we looked at Exodus together, which is a fantastic book, but we're sort of left hanging with this nation. What are they to do if they sin? Which we know they do sin. Or how can this nation l- live in obedience to God? These are the matters that are picked up in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the sequel to Exodus. It lays the ground rules on how to approach this holy God. In fact, the entire camp is laid out as a reflection of this. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Um, The camp here is laid out like this. Uh, If you go back up to the first one. So um, I think, does this do the little laser thing? I used to get in trouble with these at school, which I won't confess now. But uh, whatever, I'll just walk over to this. So we have the tabernacle. Remember, this is the portable temple. This is in the, in, in the middle. Of, and notice the, notice the 12 tribes of Israel are around, to so get north, south, east, west. Notice that they're around the tabernacle. And then as a safeguard to that, you have the Levites who are also guarding their tabernacle. So you can see there that there's a distinction. If you go to the next slide, it's interesting um, what you've got here are, here's, here's the tabernacle, and you've got, if you look, do you see the little box? Well, it's not a box, but it kind of looks like it, I suppose. Um, that's the most holy of holies inside of there, and only a priest can go there one time out of the year on the Day of Atonement, right? You can only go there once, and outside of that is the holy place. So picture, see that little white fence around it, as it were? It's not a fence, but what well, is a fence in a sense? But there you go. That's where only the priests can go. So you've got Moses and Aaron here at the doors with the priests in the courtyard. Then around the whole thing, you've got the Levites. Now, Numbers spells this out for us. Look at what this says in Numbers. Numbers says, but the Levites 
shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimonies that there be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. Okay, now why do all of this? Why set it up this way? That's kind of foreign to us because we're like, what? Why wrath? Well, look, if someone decides, hey, you know, I think I, think I ought to go take a look around the Holy of Holies. I think I'll have a go. It looks, why can't I? You know, why can't I go check it out? That's not fair. Say if it was someone from Australia or America, they'd probably think that way, right? We're autonomous individuals. Woo! No one's going to tell us what to do. Yay. So why can't I go check that out? How come the priest can't only check it out? That's not fair. If that happened, well, curiosity will kill the cat, basically. They're going to die. Look what it says here in Numbers 3.38. Those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise were Moses and Aaron and his sons, notice, guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of Israel. Now, did you notice the language used there? They were guarding the sanctuary. Now, why? Those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, notice what it says, the very last part of that verse, and any outsider who came near was put, what? To death. Now, look at this text in Numbers 4.20. It's talking about when they, because remember, the last part of Exodus, it says when they would camp, they'd go, and then they'd leave. There's a lot of coming and going, a lot of moving, right? Still tracking with me? You have the Levites, they break down the tent. But if one of these guys who's breaking down this portable temple decides, hey, I actually, you know what? As we're breaking this thing down, I kind of lean over and I go, sorry, Ben, and I go, Ben, Ben. Let's take a look at the Ark of the Covenant, right? Let's have a look at this thing. This seems pretty cool. And we know what happens in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Their faces melt, right? Um, and they're Nazis, so they deserved it, right? And so, you know, uh, if you don't know what that is, so, well, whatever. So, so, but what happens? Look, look, but, but, look, but, as we're breaking this down, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest, what? They die. Well, that seems kind of harsh. No. God is making a grave distinction between himself and human beings. God is holy. And you cannot enter his presence however and whenever you want. It is a serious thing to worship God. God is pure. He's transcendent. He is holy. He is the uh, famous aseity, if you want to use a technical term. God is completely other and different and holy. There is a creator and there is a creature and there is a thousand kilometers, mile, million, zillion, whatever distinction between zillions and billions, distinction between God and his creatures. God is holy. When Isaiah describes in Isaiah 6, the Lord, he says, holy, holy. Holy, three times, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy. He's distinct. Even if you don't believe that, he is holy. He's distinct. Even if you don't feel that, he is holy. He's distinct. He is other. He is transcendent. He is above. He is pure. And like the sun is awesome and cool, if you get too close to the sun, you will be incinerated. God cannot 
be, particularly in the book of Leviticus, he's showing that he's holy. He cannot be near those that are unclean. Otherwise, they'll be destroyed. God is holy. Now, Leviticus is interesting in that there's really only two stories, as it were, or two narratives in Leviticus. One of them, Sally already read for us, and it's in chapter 10. So, so turn there quickly because chapter 10 recounts the death of Nadab and Abihu, two of Aaron's sons. This is so clear that God is making a distinction between the holy and the profane, between how serious it is to worship him. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire in it and had incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And you know what God says? Oh, that's cool. Hey, if you guys want to do that, cool with you, cool with me, I ain't going to judge you. Is that what happens? No. No. Look, when I first was, when God was drawing me to himself and I was becoming a Christian, I was reading these passages. This was scaring the living daylights out of me. Okay? This is like, because I only got the God that just wants to make my, give my life purpose and make me happy and and I, was, and, I was, and I was reading this and I went, wow, this is full on. Okay, God is holy. Now look what happens. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Wow. Okay, what sense can we make of this story? What's going on here? Well, understanding the story helps us understand Leviticus. And because we just saw right in the center of the camp. (laughs) Welcome to Wyoming Church of Christ. (laughs) Gotta love it. Um, As we just... (laughs) That's right. As we just saw right in the middle of the camp, you've got the Levites, right? Everyone still tracking with me? Yep. God places a whole tribe of priests, the Levites, and the Levites are called to be especially distinct. They had to be ceremonially clean. They had to be physically whole. The sin of the priests cannot be dealt with at the altar of the burnt offering. Atonement must be made for them in the tabernacle. So by acting contrary to the commands of God, Nadab and Abihu failed to fulfill their very purpose as being distinct. Still tracking? They fail because they are not distinct. God is holy, so his people must be holy. The nation of Israel must be distinct from the nations around them. Now, there are a few different ways that we could, I suppose, to help you break down Leviticus, but let me just make it simple. Might be too simple, but here we go. Chapters 1 through 16 deal with 
sacrifices, if you look up here on the PowerPoint, and then 17 through 29 deal with holy living. Now, in the midst of there, there's festivals and uh, really important in chapter 26, the covenants and all that. But, but again, if you just want to sort of break it into two different portions, you've got sacrifices and holy living. So the nation of Israel is to be holy in their sacrifices and in their living. That's where we're going for the rest of our time. And in case you're asleep now at this point in the sermon, I'm going to throw out hopefully a provocative statement that might wake you up, it might not, whatever. But without understanding the sacrifices, let me say this, here's the, here's the provocative statement, and I mean this. Without understanding the sac, because we're going to talk about sacrifice, you know, yay, I know you're not living in that. You know, some of you are, you know, just going through your week and you're like, sacrifices, temple, covenant, what, huh? It's not my world. But without understanding the sacrifices in Leviticus, you cannot understand that what Jesus did on the cross. Without understanding the sacrifices in Leviticus and the old covenant, you can't make sense of the cross. Years ago, when Mel Gibson produced The Passion of the Christ, it was always interesting to hear people's feedback on that. I remember watching on the news, there was one young man who came out of the cinema and he said, they put a microphone in his face, what'd you think of the film? He said, oh yeah, I mean, it was all right. It just, I don't know, uh, didn't seem like it had much of a plot. It didn't, you know, it didn't really seem like it had much of a plot. Now, to be fair, why do you think he said that? Well, for him, there's no larger context in which to put the story. It's just the passion. It's just the crucifixion of Christ. So to him, it's like, it's just some dude getting beat up and killed in like 30 seconds of the resurrection. He doesn't understand that the reason Jesus goes through this suffering is because God has been preparing us for years to get the fact that we need a blameless sacrifice to die on our behalf so that the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from sin. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But you see, if you don't go back to Leviticus and get this, you'll miss the significance of why Jesus had to die on the cross. It will seem like the passion of the Christ doesn't really have a plot. So we have to understand that underneath Jesus' substitutionary death are all of these chapters that are pointing forward to a greater atonement, to a greater sacrifice. Now, look at Leviticus 17. Get a picture of it here a little bit. In Leviticus 17, Leviticus 17 and verse 10. Leviticus 17, verse 10. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against the person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. 
Remember in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sin, what happens? They're naked. God says, who told you you were naked? Right? And then God gives them garments to wear. Tracking? An animal had to die. He didn't, he didn't go to Aldi special that weekend and say, oh, wait, five bucks, here's a, here's a coat to wear. Someone has to die. The day that you eat of this fruit, you will die. And they did die spiritually, and then physically they did die. But in the meantime, now death surrounds the world, and now they have to leave the Garden of Eden, and an animal is slaughtered and killed. Hence the reason he covers them. So that's why, do you see that there? There's, there's already this idea of someone dying, an animal dying, uh, uh, that's pointing forward to the Lamb of God who dies for the sin of the world. So it's not just here that sacrifice is mentioned. Even the first five chapters of Leviticus prescribe the way in which God's people are to approach him. They are to approach him through sacrifice. That's how he starts off. If you just, the first seven chapters in Leviticus are, are constantly about this sacrifice and that sacrifice and this sacrifice. And, that, and that's why you start, when you get to the end of it, you're feeling kind of exhausted, right? But, it, but you can't approach the Lord, as particularly in, in the nation of Israel, right? That's what we're looking at here, just on your own. It has to be through sacrifice. Now, I don't know how all this sounds to you so far. If you're not used to reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you may be surprised to learn about this elaborate system of priests and sacrifices set up by God. Yet the Bible clearly teaches that God provides for his people in a way we cannot provide for ourselves. If you happen to be wondering about, I mean, if you're puzzled and you're, I wonder what it means to become a Christian. One good place to begin is to realize that you do not have everything you need within yourself. My goal today is not to build up your self-esteem so that you will have the confidence to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and deal with every problem life throws at you. In fact, I'll save you the time and tell you that you can't do it. We are made in God's image, but we are fallen. All the answers you need are not lying inside of you, innate and untapped, just waiting to be learned through self-understanding and self-actualization. Do enough meditation, you'll get there. If you want to find God, friend, you must first come to the end of yourself. The nation of Israel is to be holy in their sacrifice. Now, the last bit, in their living. In their living. Holiness is to pervade every area of their lives, both at an individual level and a national one. It ought to be seen in their everyday living from what they eat to their sexuality to the clothing they wear to how they harvest, even to the breeding of their animals. They are to be a distinct nation set apart wholly to the Lord. Look at chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 22. I like hearing all the Bibles. It's good. Or if you have a tablet, don't, you know, it's cool. Hear your finger hitting the phone. You shall therefore... Keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. Some 
Strong language, isn't it? And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving you before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall not inherit the land. Sorry, you shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make for yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you uh, to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. God's people must be distinct. That's pretty clear, isn't it? God's people must be distinct. Otherwise, they lie about who he is. They misrepresent him to the world. God's people are to be holy in their living. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to think about the Christians you know in your life. Maybe it's the person sitting next to you. One thing you should find in this Christian friend of yours and among God's people in general is this idea of holiness. And I would expect that your Christian friend's holiness would both comfort and unsettle you at the same time. Does it? Is there a distinction? I mean, be honest in your heart about that. If you're here this morning and and you call yourself a Christian, you must understand the importance of holiness among God's people. You must understand that God's people are distinct. If you don't, and you don't care, hey, look, throw off the name Christian, friend, and examine yourself. Christian is little Christ, you understand. You don't get to live like the devil and then have the title Christian to your name. Christian is someone who is a new creature in Christ, who's been born again by the Spirit of God. We as Christians are to be holy. And we as churches should be holy. Wyoming Church of Christ should have a reputation in this community for holiness. A reputation, again, that both confronts, comforts, and unsettles our neighbors around us. We must, as God's people, live distinct, holy lives. God is holy, so his people must be holy. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Flee sexual immorality, the Bible says. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Flee sexual immorality. Now I got your attention. So God's people, though, will inevitably fail. Will fail to be holy. We are not perfect. We sin. We deserve death for our actions. 
Our righteousness has failed us. We need a sacrificial substitute. We need atonement. So let's wrap up in Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, which points forward to a greater atonement. Oh, get too excited and I'm going to give away the, the farm. You already know where I'm going though. 16. Verse 20. So chapter 16 introduces an annual day of fasting prescribed for the nation called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, if you want to say that, or the Day of Atonement, Yom Day, Kippur Atonement, sacrifice, right? So each year the sacrifice was made. And look what happens here in verse 20, chapter 16. It's Aaron here, and when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar... He shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who in his readiness, the goat shall bear all their iniquity on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So each year the sacrifice was made. And this might seem intense. You got two goats, right? One there, and then another will go out in the wilderness. One slaughtered, one uh, cast out of, of Israelite community. This might seem intense, but this was God's gracious provision so he would dwell amongst a sinful people. Do you understand that? There is no ladder in the Old Testament that gets you to God. There is no works righteousness that gets you to God. This is still by faith. You still approach God in the Old Testament by faith. You sacrifice your animal in faith. Animal dies instead of you. Goat gets expelled instead of you. It's still by faith. We're still seeing God's graciousness. Isn't that exactly when Moses only sees his backside, God's backside, he says, the Lord, the Lord is gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I say all of that and you're like, what are you getting so worked up for? Because there's this weird dichotomy that we see this God of the Old Testament, everything, oh man, I'm glad I don't, I'm glad I don't live in that day. Oh yeah, me too. I'd much rather live in the new covenant, but you have to understand there's not, we don't have like this, if people understand God this way in a really peculiar way, that God is sort of just really ticked off in the Old Testament and then give him some time and he gets lovey and dovey and that's when we get to Jesus. No, 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 like listen, like this is the same God, God, God of the old, God of the new. And, and that, that judgment, that wrath, that punishment was poured out onto the goat for this people at this time and in this place and eventually onto his own son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see that? that there's this strange idea about this sort of these two gods almost. But interesting though, as gracious as God is to provide this, it still has to point beyond itself because the high priest has to make atonement for him first, right? And then the nation. 
and it needed to be repeated again and again and again. That's why the book of Hebrews says this. Listen to Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Good things, you see that there? Not, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of goats or bulls and goats to take away sins. It's a temporary thing that's pointing forward to a greater sacrifice. You see, our purity and righteousness is found only in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. If you have sinned, he is the atonement that you need, friend. No one else has ever shared your human nature entirely and yet remained without sin. No one else has been able to absorb the full wrath of God and satisfy it entirely. Only in Christ can this happen. So will you come to him today? Jesus has paid the price in sinners in full. Will you come to him? Do you know him? And those of us that do, those of us that call ourselves Christians to follow this God, God is holy, so his people are to be holy. You understand that in this time in Leviticus, God is serious about the purity, the holiness of his people's lives. And if they weren't, they would be expelled out of the camp. They'd be kicked out of the camp. And some of us are tempted to read that and go, man, that is, that is just, that's, I don't like that. I don't, that's, that's, that's mean. That's just mean. Look, you want to live at that time? If you read, I encourage you to do this. It's, it, just be prepared, it's going to shock you. Read chapter 18 later today and you will see some unimaginable, you know, you'll see some unimaginable things going on there. Um, Hollywood's got nothing. Fifty Shades of Grey is a weak song. Like, they got nothing compared to what Leviticus, Leviticus trumps them all, okay? And you see all of that, and you go, wow, geez, that is, that is, that's, that's gross. (laughs) Like, I won't, I won't name all the things. And in chapter 20, and then, but this is what God says, and that's the passage I read for you earlier in chapter 20. God says, don't be like those other nations who practice these things. That's why I detested them. And if you act like them, I'll vomit you out of the land. Which is a little picture of what's going to happen eventually, right? It, people, it's been said this way, when they get in, which we're going there next week, they get into the land of Canaan, they conquered the land of Canaan, but the Israelites were conquered spiritually. Right? So, yay, we're in the land, but you act just like the people that lived before you. Offering your kids a sacrifice, practicing sexual sin, etc. All these things that you know you're going to be judged for and God's laid out clearly, not for you to do. You've been conquered spiritually. If you're a Christian and you say, yes, I'm a Christian, are you clinging to Christ, friend? Is, are you truly, is your, is your life different 
than it was, say, six months ago. Six months ago, like a year ago. Is there a particular sin in your life? You know, I was chatting with April last night, and I really, when she met me and we first started dating, I really struggled, not against her, but I really struggled with anger. Really, really got cheesed off a lot. And I'm not perfect. If you hang, out, hang around me long enough, you'll see me get angry. But it was interesting. I was sharing with April. I was like, wow, how good is it of God? I think I'm a Christian. Because the guy that she married 14 odd years ago doesn't look like that same guy anymore. Now, again, you know, yeah, I think it's obvious. I'm, I'm, not, I'm far from perfect, but I'm not what I once was by the grace of God because God's working in my life. And I look, I, I, I honestly, I can look back at old pictures of 14 years ago and think about, you know, certain people that I just harbored bitterness towards, you know, murder those people in my mind, basically, right? And I don't even know who that person is. Like, I'm like, I, I honestly, I, I look at that and I go, I, I, don't, I don't even recognize that guy 14 years ago. That angry guy. I don't even, I don't even know who that dude is. Now, there's pl- plenty of sin still working <laughs> on my heart right now. But are you getting the point? God is holy. His people are called to be holy. If you really know him, is there a difference in your life? A marked, tangible difference? If not, just Literally, for God's sake, don't just assume you're a Christian. We know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. The person who says, I know him, but does not do what he says, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. God's people are holy because of the work of Jesus. And therefore, our lives reflect that new creation. Now, I, I think that's the first time I've made myself, I don't mean to make myself the hero of that story, because it's not actually. I'm pointing to the grace of God. If this, if without the Lord working, he who began a good work in you will carry it on completion, right? Without the Lord, look, I would be way worse off 14 years down the track now than I was 14 years ago. If it were up to me and my innate ability, I would be 50 times worse of a rat bag. You, you wouldn't even want to hang out with me. I'd probably be such an angry person. But for the grace of God, I am what I am. Like, thank you, Lord. I remember ringing one of my mates when I went to Bible college and I said to him, you know what's, you know what's incredible? Is, because um, when you're a pastor, you know, you're sort of like a, you're like a paid Christian, right? You know, like everyone expects me to like be a, you know, <laughs> everyone expects me to like be the holy man of God, right? You know, uh, yeah, come hang out at my house. Um, Ross will tell you. Um, no, but right, so, but I remember going in Bible college and I wasn't, I wasn't a pastor anymore. I was just studying, Right? I was just studying and I was working a secular job. I was selling furniture. And I said, to my, I said to my mate on the phone, I said, oh, it's incredible, man. I'm still a Christian. Like, I don't, I don't have to be a Christian. Does that make sense? Like, I'm not like, my job's not dependent on me being a Christian. But I'm still a Christian. Because, like, I'm genuinely saved. Like, praise God. Because of the Lord's work. And, and, if, and again, I just want you to think about those things. That's not to lambast you with guilt right now. I'm, I'm saying, can you identify with that? Is that real in your life? Are you able to point back and say, yes, look at, praise God, look at the work in my life. God is holy, his people are called to be holy. And and I pray you feel that this morning. I pray you feel the weight of that this morning. 
Um, way too much easy believism today. That it's just, just believe in Jesus. Well, I don't really live for Jesus anymore. I'm not really walking with the Lord. Why are you a Christian? Well, because, you know, when I was seven, I went to that camp and I cried and I raised my hand. Uh, you sure about that? Just check your heart, friend. Examine yourself. See if you are in the faith. God is holy. These people are called to be holy. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are holy, distinct, and you call us to be distinct. Lord, it'll never be perfect, but yet, Lord, we can be light and salt because you have saved us. And we are light and salt because you have saved us. Lord, I pray if there's any here that have just sort of snuck in, as it were, hung around this Christian community, but never, ever really turn to you in a genuine way, would you save them now, Lord? Grant them eyes to see. Grant them faith, we ask. Lord, would, we pray that those that maybe are self-deceived, maybe they just have the title Christian, but as they're sitting there now processing, I don't think I know. Lord, would you help them to continue to examine and to look beyond themselves to the work of Jesus. And Lord, if, if they're not saved, would you save them? But if they are, Lord, help them to cling and cling tightly to you, Lord, for your work on the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.